You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. The U.S. intelligence community warns of Russian threats again. A criminal spear phishing campaign hits Russian industrial companies. A crypto jacking wave is installing CoinHive in micro tick routers. Speakers at the Billington Automotive Cybersecurity Summit stress collaboration, design for security, and the convergence of cyber and safety. And municipalities hit by malware feel the pain. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, August 3rd, 2018. The U.S. intelligence community has reiterated warnings about a clear and present threat of Russian cyber activity directed against both elections and infrastructure. Those same agencies and the White House have pledged what they characterize as a vast government-wide effort to protect the coming midterm elections against foreign interference. General Nakasone, who leads both NSA and U.S. Cyber Command, indicated that both of his organizations will be involved in that effort. Kaspersky Lab reports a criminal campaign against roughly 400 Russian industrial companies. It begins with highly targeted spear phishing designed to induce the victims to install remote administrative tools on their systems. A large crypto jacking effort is also underway. Trustwave and Census.io report that more than 170,000 microtick routers are infected with the CoinHive crypto miner. Ground zero of the campaign appears to be in Brazil, but the infestations are thought to be spreading rapidly. Users of micro-tick routers should look to their systems. The second Billington Automotive Cybersecurity Summit is running today. The two morning keynotes were delivered by Michael Chertoff, CEO of the Chertoff Group and former Secretary of Homeland Security, and GM President Daniel Amon, who expressed optimism about the benefits of connected and autonomous vehicles. They argued that cybersecurity designed in from the beginning would be essential to securing those benefits, as would effective cooperation across the sector. Chertoff said we shouldn't overlook the implications of connectivity for data privacy, the data being requested of cars and drivers by insurers, for example, could amount to intrusive surveillance. One need look no farther than Facebook to see the possibilities of a serious consumer backlash. He also warned of the potential for terrorist exploitation of weaknesses in connected vehicles. He said, quote, It's not too much of a leap to consider that some small terrorist will decide it's easier to hack a vehicle and control it as a weapon. End quote. He closed with remarks about regulation, which will, he says, be inevitable, and will be better if industry anticipates it with voluntary standards. When it comes, he argued, it should be based on outcome and effects, 
and should not involve micromanagement. The Safety Act, designed to encourage investment in competent and capable counter-terror technologies, in his view represents a good legislative model. It might be worth extending this law to the auto industry. GM's direction for the future may be summed up as electrification, connectivity, and autonomy. Amman framed automotive cybersecurity as an issue that's converged with safety. It's also, in his view, a sector-wide issue. He said, quote, Failure by any one company will be regarded by the public as failure by all, end quote. Thus, cybersecurity must be a matter for cooperation across the industry. In this, he reiterated a long-standing GM theme. The company says it won't treat cybersecurity as an area in which it seeks competitive advantage. Autonomous vehicles are poised to bring huge positive benefits in terms of availability, affordability, and safety. Cybersecurity incidents could halt progress toward those benefits, which means that customers are best served by industry-wide security collaboration. During a break, we were able to speak with Robert Anderson of the Chertoff Group. He said that in his view, most people remained unaware of the advantage attackers enjoy in cyberspace. This advantage isn't a matter of superior technical capability, he thinks. Rather, it has two principal sources. First, the criminals, hacktivists, and intelligence services that constitute the threat groups don't operate under the sorts of legal or even social restraints legitimate businesses in most parts of the world do. In this, we heard an echo of what we've heard during a morning panel session from Jake Bilonsky, supervisory special agent in the FBI's Detroit field office. In the U.S., Bilonsky pointed out, you can't go to the FBI or the NSA and say, we need this widget, go steal it for us. In some other countries, notably China, you can. The other attacker's advantage, Anderson pointed out, was the efficiency of the black market and its success in commodifying attack tools. You don't have to have any particular technical expertise anymore, he said, to mount a damaging cyber attack. The means to do so are readily available in the dark web, and these reasons are why it's so hard to get ahead of the threat. We'll have more coverage of the Billington Automotive Cybersecurity Summit in upcoming issues of the CyberWire Daily News Brief. Two attacks on municipal systems are drawing attention. The smaller is the attack Matanuska Sositna Borough sustained last week in Alaska. The town has declared that the incident amounts to an official emergency and is taking various measures to contain and remediate its problems, including reversion to typewriters for routine tasks like preparing receipts. The attack included installation of the Emotet Trojan and BitPamer CryptoLocker ransomware. Matanuska Susitna is calling it the biggest attack on a U.S. city or town, but Atlanta might dispute the claim. Atlanta's cost to remediate the Samsam ransomware attack it sustained in March is now estimated at $17 million, according to a confidential document obtained by the Atlantic Journal-Constitution and WBD-TV. The city document indicates that another $11 million will be needed on top of the $6 million already spent on recovery. The journal Constitution's lead is direct and damning. Quote, Taxpayers foot bill for years of neglected network security. End quote. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. 
It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use. With zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He's a senior law and policy analyst at the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Ben, welcome back. Um, Interesting story from the New York Times about the Justice Department seizing the records uh, from a Times reporter, both telephone and email records. Give us the background here. What's going on? This is actually, you know, one of the instances where this is more of a continuation of an effort made during the Obama administration to really hold reporters accountable for information being leaked to them. And I think it's a major First Amendment concern. Certainly, the the groups that uh, are formed for uh, the purpose of protecting media sources are very concerned about this, like Reporters Committee for the Freedom of the Press, uh, those types of groups. What happened here is this Senate intelligence aide, James Wolfe, has been charged in criminal court with lying uh, to investigators about his contacts with certain reporters. And as part of that investigation, the Justice Department has been able to obtain records from the encrypted accounts of some of these reporters. One of them is actually a New York Times reporter named Allie Watkins. She had previously worked for BuzzFeed and had broken some major stories based on information she got from Mr. Wolf. Now, this is a perfectly legal process uh, in a couple of respects. For one, the Justice Department, while it has guidelines to protect First Amendment rights, also allows for a procedure in which the communications of members of the press can be collected. And that's under uh, what we call Section 2703D of the Stored Communications Act. Sometimes that's shorthanded to a D-search. If you have reason to believe that somebody's electronic stored electronic communications will aid in a criminal investigation, you can uh, obtain those records via subpoena through the electronics, uh, electronic communications company. And that's exactly what happened here. Uh, the Justice Department went to, uh, I think it was uh, Google and maybe one other electronic service provider, 
uh, or internet service provider and was able to obtain those records, those will be used in the government's case against James Wolf. It's obviously very problematic. Uh, members of the press want to protect their sources, uh, and they also don't want the government snooping uh, in their information. You know, when the Obama administration took actions to prosecute leaks and obtained uh, the private communications of journalists, they were opening a Pandora's box, especially given that uh, the administration now is certainly more hostile to members of the mainstream media. It's problematic from a First Amendment perspective. It's problematic from a journalism perspective, if you fear that your communications are going to be submitted to the government as part of an ongoing criminal investigation, you might not chase that very important story angle. It's certainly uh, a matter of great concern. Now, did the Justice Department uh, have to get a warrant here? Did they have to convince a judge? They do not need a warrant in a traditional sense. You do not need probable cause to you know, go in front of a a court and say that a crime is being committed or has been committed in order to simply obtain these electronic messages. The standard is much lower. Hmm. You just have to prove uh, that you have reasons to believe. uh, So it doesn't have to be, you know, anything above a suspicion that these texts, that these emails are going to be relevant to an ongoing criminal investigation. That's a very low standard. It's not a, a high burden for the government to meet. And even outside of the context of journalism, I think that's problematic to people that the government can obtain our stored communications without a traditional warrant. Uh, but this is the choice that Congress has made. It has um, allowed for the government to work directly with communications providers and compel those providers to turn over information based on simply a, a what amounts to a reasonable suspicion. If a layperson asked me what's the biggest concern about the government collecting my emails or my text messages, I would say that you're vulnerable to searches under Section 2703D of the Stored Communications Act. It's a very, very powerful government tool, a compliance nightmare for a lot of these tech companies because they get so many uh, de-search requests. But um, that's what the law is. Uh, It's been upheld as reasonable by the Supreme Court. It's something that all of us as consumers of electronic media sources have to be concerned about. All right. Ben Yellen, as always, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. My guest today is David Spark. He's the co-host of the CISO Security Vendor Relationship Podcast and owner of Spark Media Solutions, which does content marketing for the tech industry. He joins us to share some of the insights he's gained in the conversations he's had with CISOs, specifically when it comes to marketing. This really comes from the work that I've been doing with security companies. You know, I own a content marketing agency and we've been working with tech companies, security 
specifically companies for nine years in particular. And inevitably, you know, when you're doing any kind of marketing effort, you ask, so, you know, what's the audience you want to reach? And everyone, and I, I don't mean, you know, a few exceptions. I mean, everyone, their answer to that question is CISOs, to which my reaction was join the club. And then mm. it dawned on me if every single one of my clients wants to reach CISOs, then every one of their competitors wants to reach CISOs, and CISOs are probably getting hammered right now. And, and so what's the situation with the CISOs? I mean, is it a, is it a fire hose of, uh, of requests and offers every day? Yeah, I mean, they get sometimes 100 and 200, like just before a, an event especially, they could get 100 to 200 requests a day. And so they've gotten to the point where it just, they go in shutdown mode. They can't handle it. And there is a mutual dependency between the two groups. They need each other. That's the vendors and the CISOs. But it's an asymmetrical relationship, meaning that there's thousands of vendors hammering a very small quantity of CISOs. And so they still need the help from the vendors, but the way the engagement is going is just – it's something they physically can't handle. And so what are some of the, the mistakes that you see people making when they're trying to engage with CISOs? Well, one of the most classic ones that got a lot of discussion was the, the 15 minutes of your time request. And uh, this one, oh, man, everyone sort of jumped on the bandwagon on this. And I'm sure you've heard this. I'm sure people have said this to you. And what this really plays or preys on is the goodwill of the person who's receiving it. Please give me, this person you don't know, 15 minutes of your time. It's not, hey, I'm going to answer all your problems in 15 minutes. It's more pay attention to me for 15 minutes. And there's just so much goodwill a CISO can spread around. And to every single vendor who requests that, uh, it's not much. And, and the irony is a friend of mine asked me to do that to a CISO, you know, give me an introduction to a CISO. He goes, oh, I just want 15 minutes of the time. And every time I get that now, I just point them to the article that I wrote about that very subject. I go, I don't think you want to be making that request. And you'll see that the response to it is not positive. <laughs> One of the articles I saw that you, uh, that you wrote was about, uh, it was called Nine Reasons Why Selling Fear Does Not Work on a CISO. Uh, let's dig into that. What was that about? Selling fear has traditionally been a successful tactic to sell security products, period. It just is. And, you know, people could argue this all they want, but individual companies could probably come to you and, and to I and say, look at this. I have evidence that this technique works. Uh, so you can tell me to stop selling fear, but I sell more when I sell fear. But the problem is as you go up the chain of command to the people who are dealing with that fear on a daily basis, for a vendor to reintroduce that is A, insulting, and B, realize they don't know who they're dealing with at that time. Hmm. So uh, it's, it's, it's a very – it's a high level of frustration. They just – they don't like it and it's just really inappropriate. The one thing that they should really watch out for, and this is really gets every CISO annoyed, is when they use that fear tactic – to sell over the CISO's head and go straight to CEO, oh, oh that oh that drives them crazy, <laughs> really crazy. So they get it down from the top. If they if they are successful in uh, in rattling the CEO, the the CISO has to mop up the mess. Exactly. The the idea being, this is a person that I have formed a relationship with, and now you're screwing it up by selling them fear. Not only do I not want your product, 
now. Now I hate you. Like, you know, it's like, don't do that because <laughs> you're making my life miserable. I mean, my life is difficult enough as a CISO. Now you're really making it difficult. So let's come at it from the other direction. When you talk to CISOs, how do they want people to approach them? So this is this is the one thing that we try to really sell on our podcast is that it is not negativity. It is a lot. There's a lot of positivity. Yes, we may say stop doing this. But and we talked about this in the last episode is we try to complement every negative with a positive like this is what you should do. So the advice that we get a lot of is uh, just talk to us. And I go, well, we just want 15 minutes of your time. He goes, well, CISOs are in public spaces like they're online and every CISO has their space. Sometimes it's not digitally. Sometimes you got to meet them in person. And yeah, that takes more time. The one thing that we hear repeatedly is getting involved in local events, getting involved in local ISSA chapters and local security events are truly the most popular ways to connect with CISOs. Are there any absolutely just uh, toxic things that you absolutely should not do when you're trying to to kick off this relationship? Well, go, going back to the selling fear, like the the one that that sort of set the ball in motion, there was some breach that had come out and he was just waiting for the torrent of emails that would come in that said, hey, you know, had had you had our product, this problem never would have happened. And you can't a, make those claims a lot of times or protect all breaches or detect all breaches. It's kind of a unrealistic claim. So be very, very wary of using the latest attack as a means to instill fear. But... Uh, there are positive ways to use the latest attack as a, hey, by the way, I know you're aware of this attack. Uh, you should know that our product does this and kind of leave it at that kind of a thing, but not, you know, you know, where are the solution? Like we would have stopped this kind of thing. Those claims really infuriate CISOs. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's an interesting uh, perspective. I mean, the, the, it seems like the, the CISO has so many balls in the air all the time. Yes. Uh, to even, you know, grab uh, some of their attention. The, the, the thing you must not do is waste their time. Don't waste their time, but it, don't create unnecessary stress. I think that's what it, it's all about. I mean, all this advice is that they don't need additional stress. They got plenty as it is. Reduce their stress. And, you know, the, the classic thing is understand my needs, understand that. And everyone's like, well, would you just talk to me? And one of my articles actually goes into how to find out about a CISO's needs when they won't talk to you. Because there's actually a lot of public information that you can do a little of investigative reporting to actually understand it. And this this goes into like account-based marketing. And sure, it takes a lot more work. But, you know, a lot of these vendors are selling, you know, six, seven-figure products. So it's worth it to do that work. Yeah, do your homework. All right. Well, David Spark, uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, tell us a little bit about the podcast. What's the best way to find it? Well, the best way to find the podcast is you, you can either find it on Security Boulevard or if you just like to listen to it on your phone or whatever podcatching device you use, uh, you can search on the CISO Security Vendor Relationship Podcast. But you may not need to type all that in. I believe if you just type in CISO, it's the number one result. All right. Great. David Spark, thanks for joining us. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. 
Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.